Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Bucky Buckstabber, and he'll be answering your questions on using fly fishing to help stop poverty and human trafficking. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Bucky a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Look in the right-hand column of our website, and you'll see a form to sign up. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. And when you do, just use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. That'd be great. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and uh, bring some people over so that they can uh, learn about what we're talking about tonight. I also want to let you know about a new social media app that I will be using for conversations on fly fishing. It's called Clubhouse. I will be hosting a room on Clubhouse every Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Clubhouse is like a conference call where people can talk with each other live. And I've invited the top fly fishers that have been on my shows to join in the conversations. If you're a member of Clubhouse, follow me on Clubhouse and you'll be notified when I open the rooms. If you're not a member, you need to have an iPhone, not available for Android yet, and you also need to be invited. So if you need an invitation, just contact me. Send me an email at roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. Again, roger at askaboutflyfishing.com. And let me know, and I'll get you an invitation to, uh, to join. Uh, again, I'll be hosting a room on Clubhouse every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, so I hope to see you there. The content of this broadcast is being copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses ask about fly fishing. And when we return, we'll be talking with Bucky Buckstabber about using fly fishing to help stop poverty and human trafficking. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength to weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Bucky, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Time Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Bucky's section that says register for the free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. 
We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. I've got a list of books that I can give away. And uh, if you win tonight, you'll be able to choose from that list of books from Stackpole Books. And if you want to learn more about what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com, and you can see all the books that they've published there. So here's how you can win. You've got to be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question is going to be about something that Bucky and I talk about during the show. Uh, it may be a one- or two-part question, and you'll just need to answer it. Be the first one to answer it at the end of the show. And using that text box on our homepage. And it's the same text box that you can use to ask questions uh, during the show. So it'll be the same place. So listen closely, take some good notes, and maybe you'll win a, a book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Bucky Buckstabber. Bucky is the founder and executive director of Fly Fishing Collaborative. He provides 20-plus years as a development-focused leader. Central to Bucky's life is a strong compassion for serving children, especially those who have been victimized. In 2010, he became a camp director for the nonprofit Royal Family Kids Camp. For four summers, Bucky devoted his time organizing and leading week-long camps for abused, neglected children in the foster care system. In 2013, Bucky's passions were realized as his love for kids, creative ingenuity, and entrepreneurship were combined to found Fly Fishing Collaborative. Through this leadership, he has inspired the Collaborative to flourish into an international nonprofit building environmentally safe and sustainable aquaponics farms for orphanages and schools, preventing kids from entering human trafficking. This has been accomplished by establishing a global network of partners in fly fishing and beyond who use their passions to give financially and through works of volunteer labor. Partners of Fly Fishing Collaborative include Adventure Sun Valley, Teton Valley Lodge, Little Creek Outfitters, a number of Sims and Patagonia ambassadors, and hundreds of fly shops, fly tires, and expert guides. When Bucky is not on the river with fly fishing collaborators or building a farm in a developing country, he's treasuring the time he has with Britta, his wife of 20 years, and their four kids, Lucy, Crosby, Griffin, and George, who all share the same passion for their nonprofit work. Bucky, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you, Roger. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. And uh, you just got back from a fishing trip, right? I did. This was my uh, the first. I haven't traveled much this this past twelve months. Yeah, and, like uh, all of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the doors are finally starting to creak open a little bit now that we've got immunizations flowing. And um, I haven't been immunized yet, but um, but there's you know there's a lot of a lot of good things on the horizon, and, and countries are getting a little bit more. And we've got, obviously, a lot of more access to COVID testing. So, anyways, a buddy of mine uh, had one, I think it was through a raffle or an auction or something, he won a trip to South Andros Island on the Bahamas. And he couldn't find anybody to go with him, so he twisted my arm. <laughs> and I was able to spend last week in the Bahamas chasing bonefish. So you're this guy's only friend, I guess, then. <laughs> if he can't find yeah. anybody to go, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know actually, about 50 he, people that are jumping on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm usually the first one he asks. We fish. He's he's yeah. actually kind of he's a colleague of mine with a nonprofit. He's one of my board members, and we we fish together all over the world doing our, our projects. And so um, we've yeah. kind of be, just become pretty loyal fishing buddies. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. So how'd you guys do? How was fishing? Oh, it was great. Yeah, we did good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've caught bonefish in other places. This is my first time in the Bahamas, 
And, you know, I've caught bonefish in Belize and in Honduras, and, and they're smaller, but they're also so spooky down there. And I don't know if it's just the lack of pressure that the fish are experiencing because so many lodges are, you know, very, very low operating. Um, but these fish were quite kind. <laughs> they were, they were yeah. quite agreeable. Yeah, they cooperated. Um, and, you know, probably average bonefish, we were catching them in the four to six pound range. Um, nice. And we had a couple of seven, eight pounders and shots at some double digit fish. There's some big bonefish over there in the Bahamas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was talking to my friend uh, who's a guide in Belize, and um, yeah, he says the fish down there are well rested, you know. He's seeing yeah. a lot more fish, permit coming up on the flats and that kind of thing because they just haven't had the, you know, the, the pressure that they normally have. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, good time to go down there. Well, good. Glad you had a nice trip out of that. And, yeah, I got uh, I got my first shot today. I got a little sore arm here. So uh, um, I'm <laughs> I'm ready to travel, too. Only one more shot, and I'll be ready to go. So, uh, yeah, good. yeah um, looking forward to that. Um Good. Well, let's uh, let's. I want to find out a little bit more about you. So, when did you first start fishing? Has this been a lifelong passion of yours? It has been. Yeah, I started fishing. Well, I started. I'm one of those kids. I think, and I meet some kids like this where I call it the fishing gene, and they just, for some reason, are always driven towards fish, and they're thinking about fish, and they don't get bored when you go fishing. So, I've taken a lot of kids fishing, and. I'd say, you know, 80% of them, you really have to keep them entertained or take them to a stock trout pond so that there's a lot of action. But then there's those kids that have the fishing gene, and they just, they'll sit on their rod all day long without any kind of action and still be completely in the zone. Um, mm -hmm. And I was one of those kids. I had the fishing gene. I, I don't even remember when I first experienced when I first went fishing, but my earliest memories of two, three, four years old, I was always chasing fish. I was I grew up my early early years in Lake Tahoe, um, and I was always exploring the creeks and the lakes around Truckee um, there in Tahoe. And, um, and then my parents moved, actually my mom, my mom and dad split up. My mom moved us up to the Bay Area in Palo Alto, California, and now I'm this kid. I grew up in a log cabin in Truckee and um, out in the woods outside of Lake Tahoe. And I was just a wild, you know, dirty kid that was, a, you know, had a couple of hippie parents that lived in a cabin. And then when my mom and dad split up, she moved my brothers and I to Northern California to the city. And we had never even been to a city. And we're oh living in Palo Alto, and all I wanted to find was water. I needed a place to go find fish. And I was probably <laughs> seven years old when we moved there, and there was an irrigation canal that ran underneath the freeway. And my brother and I, we weren't supposed to go past the second block of our neighborhood, but we snuck out went because there was water there. And so we rode our bikes down the street, round the corner, past the liquor store that we weren't supposed to go past, and then tucked, and then there's a cut fence, chain link fence, and we rode or uh, crawled through the chain link fence, and we we're on the five-lane freeway, the Bayshore, Bayshore Freeway there in California. And then we 
walked up the shore of the freeway and climbed down the overpass and into the irrigation canal, and we found schools of carp. Hmm. And that became my playground all those years I lived in California. <laughs> I would go oh. chase those carp every chance I got. Interesting, so anyway, yeah. That's cool, <laughs> yeah. That's a long answer to a, a really simple yeah. question. No, I could just no, say, that's... oh, well, I was six when I started. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. So what? Um, how did you uh, – what, what were you doing before the Fly Fishing Collaborative? For, for um, before oh, – so first of all, I have to give a shout-out to my grandpa real quick because my dad was um, – he was uh, – how do I put it? He, he was uh, not a good dad um, and left when we were, we were – my mom left because my dad was abusing her, and, or, and so he, I had nobody to teach me how to fish. And so my grandpa took me in, and I don't know how many people have a story similar to this, but my grandpa taught me how to fly fish when I was 14, mm -hmm. and that's when the fly fishing bug hit me. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I have to give a shout-out to him because so much of what I do now – is a result of the influence and the pouring in and the time that my grandpa spent with me. Yeah, that's good to hear. I'm teaching yeah. my grandson right now, and uh, and he's just uh, getting a kick out of it, and I'm getting all kinds of pleasure from uh, helping him out too. So uh, yeah, it's uh, and I remember my grandfather. I still remember a story uh, when I had my son, and he was young. He was maybe about 12 or something. I'm even younger than that, I, I probably. And we were in a boat on the Menominee River up in Wisconsin and Michigan area. And uh, so my grandfather had this jar of those, uh, they're like garlic marshmallows, you know, fish bait. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, he opened the jar and looked at my son and, and said, he says, man, it, the fish really like these. I really like these too. And he popped a couple in his mouth. Oh, nasty. <laughs> and you, 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 you know how nasty that must have been. He kept a straight face, and my son's eyes got so big. <laughs> and he still remembers that story today. But, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, his his great-grandpa ate some of those garlic marshmallows, so fish big. But anyway, um, so, um, well, good. Back to that. What were you doing before you started uh, Fly Fishing Collaborative? Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, before I was – I've always worked – at least most of my adult life, I've worked with children. Um, I was a children's pastor for several years, um, actually a good decade, and then also ventured into doing summer camps for, I think you uh, um, mentioned it in the announcement, the, early, the beginning of the show, for abused and neglected foster kids. And I did that for four years leading up to starting FFC. And really that was, that working hands-on with those abused and neglected kids from the foster care system was really where I began to get a passion for not just working with kids, but working with kids that have been uh, treated unjustly and had been victimized. And that's where I really started to learn more about kids and trafficking as well. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And when did you start FFC then? So I started FFC in 2013. Um, and it really started with just, again, just that a burden for children, but it was also a burden that I could continue just to weigh on me 
of doing something even more, doing something that was making a difference in the world, which I already feel like I was, but doing it in a way that was so real and genuine to me and to who I am, uh, because I'm a just a strong believer that we can be who we are and we can do what we love to do, but when we do it not just for our own benefit, but when we exist and use what we have and do what we enjoy, but we do it to benefit the lives of other people, I think that's when we thrive the most as the human beings we're supposed to be. And so I was looking for, so what do I love to do? I love to fly fish. (laughs) And so how can I funnel that into something that doesn't just benefit me, but also benefits the lives of other people? And so I just wrestled with that for a good solid year. Like, I love fly fishing, I love the fly fishing community, and there is such a powerful force when a community joins together around a certain purpose. So what could that purpose be? And so one day my wife said, we had learned about aquaponics farming, and some friends of mine were actually traveling around the world building farms aquaponics farms, which we'll probably get into what an aquaponics farm is a little bit later in the show. But they're building aquaponics farms for orphanages. And my wife said, why don't we raise money through fly fishing to fund those farms? I'm like, boom, that's Uh it. A lightning just struck. I know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Interesting. And yeah. That's a, so that's how yeah, I was kind of wondering what, yeah, I was wondering what came first, you know, if, uh, if, you know, you were out there, you know, doing, doing these farms and then tried to find a way to fundraise, but, but you actually went the other way around. It sounds like I um, do a lot, but, but you had been working with the life. kids. Yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. So is, is working with FFC a full time job for you now? Is this, it is, yeah. Since uh, it is, see, since, okay. Yeah, since 2017, I've been on full time. Um, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of travel, um, mm-hmm. and it's when I took the leap to to make this my full time venture. Um, it was a scary leap. It was a risky leap. I've got you know I've got a family and bills to pay and everything else, but I knew that if I didn't take that leap, FFC would never become, we call it FFC, Fly Fishing Collaborative, would never become what I want it to be without more attention. And so I just, I thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my life wondering what if. What if? What if I could have just done that full time and what could it have become? I didn't want it to see, see it fizzle out because I believe in this mission so strongly. And so I, I started to, like, just reach out to my network of people and said, hey, would you consider if I re- – they, they all know what I'm doing with, with building these farms around the world. Would you consider funding my salary so I can actually do this full-time to see if that this thing will take off? And I had some amazing, generous people fund 100% of my salary so I could get the organization started. And they're still doing it today which is amazing. Cool, cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Very cool. Well, let's take a, a quick break here, Bucky, and when we come back, uh, you can tell us about what the mission of FFC is and uh, 
so hang tight, everybody, and we'll be right back and find out what the mission of FFC is. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook all within a few miles of each other, but you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take a, just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesleyflyfishing.com. Again, that's charlielesleyflyfishing.com, or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bucky Buckstabber about using fly fishing to help stop poverty and human trafficking. If you'd like to ask Bucky a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So, Bucky, um, what is the mission of Fly Fishing Collaborative? Uh, it's pretty well defined in our mission statement, which is mobilizing the fly fishing community to create sustainable solutions to poverty and human trafficking. So that's our okay. mission in a nutshell. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, factors in how we actually, you know, live that mission out. How do we mobilize right. the fly fishing community? How do we create sustainable solutions to poverty and human trafficking around the world? And so our, yeah. you know, well, our bread and butter is building these farms. And so okay. we mobilize okay. the fly fishing community through involvement, through fundraising events and volunteer work and all these different, um, you know, shows and fun events that we do to rally the community together. And then with the money that we raise, we go around the world. We locate safe homes and orphanages, safe homes that are rescuing women and children from brothels and prostitution rings, and they're caring for them, and we'll go and we'll build a farm for that home or for that orphanage that is rescuing kids from either trafficking or abject poverty, and that farm will help to create a sustainability for that home because we'll feed their children, and it will generate income by selling produce in the marketplace. Um, a lot of these safe homes are just run by a mom and dad or a, a family or even a grandmother in that local community that doesn't want those kids in her village to be trafficked anymore. And so she'll create a home to protect those children. And so those are the people that we really aim to serve. Are, so these are could be a home, an orphanage, something like that. Now, are they able to um, produce enough, um, you know, vegetables, fish, whatever, to sustain themselves? And you say they're, they're also selling it, so they have surplus. Yeah. Product. Yeah. Um, yep. And it all. Yeah. They they can certainly have surplus and take the both the fish if they want to. There's some areas in the world where 
fish is a huge commodity. Like we've done farms in Thailand, and we've also fished a lot in Thailand. And um, the fishing in Thailand is really, really depleted. Um, it's it's an exhausted resource, and there's mm. there hasn't been regulations to maintain the fisheries there, and so the rivers and the lakes are just emptied. Um, and they love fish. <laughs> And so uh-huh. to be able yeah. to empower them by growing their own fish and then taking those fish to the marketplace, you've got a hot commodity. And we want to create mm, those kinds of hot commodities because when these poor families have a commodity like a fish to take to the fish market, then their children don't become a commodity. And that's where trafficking is so powerfully generated is through the vulnerable. And traffickers target the vulnerable, and they commoditize the women and children into selling themselves because they have no other means. And so we want to create a new, sustainable, lasting commodity for these communities. Mm-hmm. So um, you've mentioned a couple of ways it benefits the local community. Are there other benefits to the community? that may not be direct, as you've described? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. I When you ask that question, my mind goes back to, and this is, you know, this is, a, this is just a, a benefit in awareness and in hope. Um, one of the farm managers that we were training in Kenya, we built a farm in Kenya, Africa, and we're – and one of our partners that was helping us with this project was communicating to the farm manager, and he's saying, we're going to build you guys a farm, and it doesn't have any soil. And, the so- you know, it, in a lot of these dry, <laughs> you know, places, it's, it's really hard to keep soil nutrient and fresh and moist and everything else. And, and he's like, what do you mean it doesn't have any soil? Because aquaponics farming, again, we'll explain more about the systems, but it's soilless farming. You're, you're growing vegetables and plants out of either just water from floating rafts or out of rocks, out of gravel. And so we're trying to explain to them, we're going to help you have an abundant produce that's all year long, that's not dependent on the rainy season, and you're going to be able to grow your vegetables straight from the rocks. And he's like, that's not possible. That's not possible. And then we built the farm, and he saw how we create a system where vegetables can grow from the rocks. And he was like, you have opened not just my eyes, but our entire community's eyes to what we thought was impossible can be possible. And so it's even just helping with mentality and helping people realize that there's some things that we have to consider that are outside the box that, that can't, it's, it's giving hope. You know what I mean? It's giving hope to, to people that maybe have lost it. And so it's really beautiful to see those light bulbs go. Yeah. Do they, um, have you put in farms in a community and then have they multiplied uh, because of the, the interest or the, you know, where, where they see the benefit? I mean, have there become yeah, more farms yeah, in the area? Yeah, we have. Yeah, so um, we built a farm in, in Nepal two years ago, 
And the whole purpose of that was to be a training farm for, um, for village leaders to take that, that understanding to their villages and really spread kind of aquaponics farmings within the communities surrounding Kathmandu where we, we were working. Um, and that's beginning to happen in, in Nepal. Um, we're actually going to go build another farm. Well, we were supposed to go build in a second farm there last year, but that didn't happen because of COVID. So we're supposed to go there again this year. Um, we've also had farm managers expand the farm. We'll build them kind of a standard size farm, and then they'll realize that they want to grow it and create more fish and more vegetables. And they add additional tanks and additional grow beds. And so that's always really encouraging to see that they're, you know, taking such ownership over the system and have it so dialed to where they're creating it to grow. Definitely. And you've already mentioned uh, Thailand, Kenya, um, uh, Nepal. Um, so, and, and you've gone into other countries. I know Belize we talked about. Uh, what other places have you put in farms? Um Let's see, besides, let's see, I mentioned Kenya, I mentioned Nepal, I mentioned Thailand. So we've put farms in Uganda, in Zimbabwe, in Mexico City, in Peru, and in Honduras. Hmm. Now, yeah. why, um, why all over the world, basically, and not focused in... Um, you know, a particular country. I mean, I can see, like, just take any one of those countries you just talked about, and they, you could yep. probably put in a farm a week there, um, you right. know, uh, in different communities. Why the spread uh, across the world? That is a great question. Um, really because a lot of the organizations like nonprofits and and organizations that are doing justice work around the world, you hardly see them bouncing around like we bounce around. They're really investing in one community, one village, or, or a handful of villages in a region and pouring their heart and soul into that community. And so what we do is we support them. And so we find people that are doing incredible work whether they set up a safe home or they set up an orphanage or whether they build a school that is helping serve the needs of the, you know, impoverished children of that community, we find those people that are pouring their heart and soul out and serving their community and creating solutions, and then we'll come in and we'll build them a farm to help, to farm to help them become more sustainable. So they're not relying ah, yeah. on Western money. They're not relying on donations constantly, but we want to create a sustainable revenue source for them. And so do you um, – so you obviously have a network now probably pretty vast around the world knowing where these, these other organizations are working. Is that then how you, you've picked these locations is because people are already there uh, doing this Yeah. Work? Absolutely. So you're kind and, you of know, coming and, in on secondarily into these efforts that are being made rather than you just going, pointing on the map and saying, hey, let's go put one in in, uh, in Guatemala or something. Right? Exactly. They're always made by connections that we have with people that we know are doing incredible work, and we want to see that work flourish and continue. 
So now we get applications. When we first started the first couple of years, we were just, you know, looking for safe homes to support and looking for orphanages to support. And now we have more farm requests than we know what to do with. Um, we've received more farm requests this year because of the pandemic than we've ever received in our history because so many short-term relief programs are shut down because of COVID, and it's left these communities, like, suffering and desperate, wondering what they can do because they're not getting the relief that they used to get because it can't get shipped or visitors can't come. And so we've received a lot of, a lot of applications because now more than ever, communities in the developing world are looking for more self-sufficient solutions. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the COVID thing has upset everything. <laughs> it's amazing how many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just everything. I mean, every business, I mean, I mean, actually, I guess, you know, a lot of fly fishing businesses have thrived during this other than the, the first yeah, month of fly lockdown. Fishing, but. Yeah, a lot of recreation companies where people are taking that money that would have spent on vacation and just buying bikes or buying rafts and kayaks or um, and I, I don't think Zoom is doing all that bad either financially. <laughs> oh no, Zoom's not good. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, I'm trying to look at the statistic. I, I think it was um, something like three. Oh, here it is. Three million. Um, three million more license fishing licenses were sold in 2020 than 2019. Three million. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So people were going out and fishing because they weren't working or couldn't do anything else. And, I and guess, you, you can know, be socially distancing while you do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting how that's what a different effects that this whole thing has had. So um, mm -hmm. you said earlier, you know, that you were kind of thinking fly fishing is a good way to raise money and so forth. Uh, so what, be specific and, you know, what are the different methods you're using for raising money using fly fishing? Yeah, good question. Um, I would say we've got three different revenue streams that we use for, for FFC. One is our events, and so we'll hold various events throughout the year. Um, we're actually two days away from our biggest annual event, which is a big fundraising Every year we've done it in person. This year we're doing it virtually. But it's a big auction and um, raffle and, and just a big special appeal by me just to help continue to fund our organization. We typically would have a big banquet in downtown Portland, Oregon, where I live. Um, this year it's, it's virtual, so we can actually invite people from all over the place. Events is a, a very, you know, key um, method for us to, to raise funds. We also have like film tour showings and we have different ambassadors around in different states that will host a film tour, a fly fishing film tour showing and they'll use that as a fundraiser for the organization. So those types of events are always really, and it's, and I love those too because they bring the community together around something that they love, fly fishing for something really important, helping these kids. And so, anyways, events, and then also we have some products that we developed, kind of a whole line of 
leather, like real heirloom quality, leather fly fishing, real cases, and fly fishing wallets, and, you know, like the real cool classic kind that's leather with wool inside that you stick your flies in. And we've got, we've got probably like a dozen products that we sell, and that helps. And then direct support is our biggest, our biggest way of funding our work is through, just through direct support, just people generously giving. Well, you also, I, I think, mentioned on your website, you have people volunteering to, now I don't know if you're selling flies on there too, are the, are the tires yes. volunteering their time? I, I kind of list that, yeah, I list that in with our products as well. And that has been so fun because we just thought, Man, people love to tie flies, and it's a creative outlet. But kind of like I said earlier, when we do, we use what we have and we do what we love, but we do it for a benefit for others more than just ourselves, we'll also thrive. And I wanted to invite everybody into that. And so we thought, let's just create, create a little fly tying initiative, and we'll ask a dozen or so fly tires that we know do really quality work and we'll see if they'll just, you know, when they are bored and they want to sit down and tie flies at their vice, that they'll, we'll see if they'll tie flies for us and we'll sell them on our website. They never stay in stock. It's so awesome. Mm. They send us flies, we post them, and they're gone. It is they're the gone. coolest little yeah. initiative. Yeah. Yeah, and you also mentioned um, you have guides donating their guide trips, right, to raise funds yeah. as well? Yes. Oh, gosh. We have is that a part of the ambassador thing? Or? No, what that is, and I just, oh, man, okay. without our guide support, we would not be nearly where we are. The guides donate trips to our auctions. And so we have lodges and we have guides in different, you know, that focus on different rivers and different regions and different states, and, and they donate annually to our auctions, and they always are a big hit. Oh, I bet. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, so tell me about, uh, well, let's take a quick break here before we jump into and start talking about the actual farms. Uh, so hang tight here, everybody, and uh, we'll be right back and talking about how these farms are built and uh, cared for. So hang tight. Enrico Puglisi flies prides themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bucky Buckstabber about using fly fishing to help stop poverty and human trafficking. If you'd like to ask Bucky a question, just go to our homepage, Fill out that form there and send it in, and we'll try to get your questions answered tonight on the show. So, um, I think we were talking about volunteers. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm just checking the questions that are coming in here, Bucky. Just give me a oh, second. Gotcha. Are you work? 
Oh, uh, here's a question before we jump back into the volunteer thing. Uh, are you working anywhere in the U.S.? Rich from uh, Thomas, Toms River, New Jersey wants to know. Oh, good question, Rich. Um, yes, we are. Um, and that's something that, you know, when we founded the organization, you know, we've, we're doing so much of this work way outside the U.S. and always knowing that there is so much trafficking going on right here in our own backyard. And the complexities are different because it's, it's still trauma-related, but it's a lot less poverty-related. So our farms, and we're in a, you know, affluent country, and, and so the farm thing doesn't really work in the States. But, but we started a local initiative, and the local initiative is this. We found an organization in Portland that is doing advocacy work for trafficking victims. And these are usually young girls that have been uh, detained by the police because of illegal trafficking, because they've been prostituted or they've been kidnapped or they're runaways, and they are being victimized and controlled and manipulated by their traffickers. And when the police get them, the police aren't necessarily as well trained in dealing with this type of trauma as social workers are, um, as trauma-informed caregivers are. In fact, in the, the history of law enforcement, when a, a trafficker would always just be seen as a prostitute or a trafficked victim would always, nine times out of ten, be seen as just a prostitute and get thrown in jail, not knowing the severity of the manipulation and control that they've experienced. So there's an organization in Portland, Oregon called Safety Compass, and they are amazing because they work in partnership with law enforcement. And when the law enforcement gets a trafficking victim, they call Safety Compass, and Safety Compass comes in with trauma-informed trained advocates, and they care in the first hour of that arrest, they care for that victim in such a way that empowers them to get rehab and to get job training and to get therapy. And um, they are seeing incredible, incredible results. And so we thought, we want to support that. And so we started sponsoring survivors to get advocacy care because they are so overwhelmed at Safety Compass. They have, like, I think every single advocate that they have on their staff has a workload that's four or five times what it should be, and they just need help desperately. So we started sponsoring. So last year, this is my answers are so long. No, we got plenty of time. <laughs> but I get excited about all this stuff. Sure. Last year we sponsored sure. fourteen. We sponsored 14 survivors to get advocacy for an, an entire year. Um, and that's been a really, really great, it's a local initiative that I see continuing to grow and hopefully a multiply, that model can multiply in different cities. Um, mm -hmm. And we're also right now in deep dialogue with two Indian reservations here in the Northwest to do some farms for them. And that's oh, really okay. exciting. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, we were, yeah, we were talking about volunteers. Were you going to take that into the building of the farms? Because if so, then I'll, I'll start jumping into the, the farms here. Or did you have yeah, other? Yeah, absolutely. I can, 
work. No, I okay. mean, um, yeah, that's, I mean, we really rely on volunteers for these farms because, um, you know, I mean, what's the old adage, many hands make the work light? <laughs> and it's a lot of work building these farms. We go in and we'll get a whole entire farm greenhouse system put in in usually one to two weeks. Um, and then oh, wow. spend an additional week in planting and training and all the rest. But that's not possible without getting a team of, all, you know, six to ten volunteers um, that are really working their tails off. And, you know, because there's sometimes there's a lot of digging, there's a lot of building, there's a lot of painting, there's, there's a lot of grunt work in putting these farms together. Um, and uh, we just have an incredible, there's the bonding and the camaraderie that takes place during these builds is, is amazing. And the volunteers, they fund their way to go. So if a volunteer wants to come on an FFC farm build, they'll raise the money and pay for themselves to spend two weeks in Honduras and build a farm for an orphanage or a safe home and work their, I mean, they'll take their hard-earned money and then they'll work their tail off for two weeks. And they're never disappointed because of the meaningful work that we're doing. But we also, because a lot of our volunteers do come from the fly fishing community, um, after the build, we just need some rest. And so we'll usually take like two, three, sometimes four days, and we'll go find some crazy fishing destination in that area, and we'll just go like chill, rest, fish before we come home. And that always leads to some pretty exciting adventures. <laughs> Do you have like salaried managers that build out these farms that, that are always on the team? and then they manage the volunteers, or do you have a standard group of volunteers that are going again and again that have the knowledge to do this? How does that yes. work? Yes, we have an aquaponics farm director, and our aquaponics farm director, um, aquaponics is not, you know, it, it's a simple and easy and incredibly productive way to grow vegetables. Um, I'm talking like growth rates that are four or five times faster than conventional farming because of the rich flow of nutrients that come from the fish waste. It's incredible, but it's not conventional. And so you need to have somebody like our aquaponics director come and teach the nuances of how to actually construct and how to maintain um, the ongoing success of an aquaponics farm. Um, so we do, we have an expert in the field that does a considerable amount of leading the team and training the farm managers that live there locally. Okay, but you bring in a crew to help build it initially, yeah. right? Yeah. So does yeah. that yeah. vary so from build to build? Yeah. It, it's always a different crew. Yep. Oh, so okay. we have I go on I've gone on every build um, which I'm going to now that I'm I'm kind of the traveling is we're building more and more farms every year. So so now we're kind of expanding our team a little bit. So we have an operations director that also will kind of lead the volunteer team and then the aquaponics farm director that leads the actual build. And those are the two staff members that go on the builds, and then the volunteers always vary. They always change. Mm -hmm. And how needy are you for volunteers, or is that kind of a – a hard gig to get with you. Um, we've, you know, 
it's funny. We've never had to like beg for volunteers, um, and we've never right. had to like have. We never had too many. It's just always just been a perfect team. Worked out, huh? Hmm. Yeah, just it's, it's worked. We have a volunteer. I mean, really, the way that we do our volunteer program is it's pretty. It's pretty basic. You just email me. <laughs> <laughs> And what is no, uh, I know because of because of airfare differences and stuff, it's going to vary. But would it cost a volunteer to go work on one of these projects? What what do they have? Yeah, depending on yeah, it does vary. So if we're talking like South or Central America, it could be in like the two to three thousand dollar range, um, just depending on you know flight costs, um, mm -hmm. and then maybe a little bit more if we're going to do some fishing afterwards. If we're talking Southeast Asia, it's going to be more in the five to six thousand dollar range. Okay, and and what happens? Uh, do, do the locals provide housing for the volunteers? It depends. Are they camping yeah, out. What's yeah? Yeah, it, it depends. Um, sometimes the orphanage or safe home will have a facility big enough for us to house the team in. Um, other times they won't, and so we'll get an Airbnb in a local, you know, town or village or a hotel, or we just, we figure out where we're going to stay. <laughs> That's within, mm -hmm. you know, a reasonable traveling distance to get to the farm build every day. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool, cool. Well, tell us now, <laughs> since we've been talking about it so much, uh, Describe in detail what an aquaponics farm is. What is an aquaponics farm? Um, if you've heard of aquaculture, that's raising fish, and then if you've heard of um, hydroponics, which is growing vegetables, so aquaponics takes those two concepts and merges them into one system. So you're raising fish in fish tanks, and I should note that it's an enclosed system, and it's incredibly um, environmentally safe. Um, in fact, it's probably the most organic way of farming that there is that I know of. It's incredible. And you raise these fish, usually in our case it's tilapia, in these fish tanks, and then you have grow beds connected to the fish tanks. And the grow beds, you got two, we use two styles of grow beds. We use what's called a deep water bed, deep water culture, and it's a be, uh, grow bed, basically a tub that's full of water with a styrofoam wrap on top. And then the plants grow on the styrofoam, and then the, sea, the roots of the plants fall down in the water. Okay, and that's, that's where you grow all your leafy greens, like your lettuces. And then... So do you actually the, put the seed? Do you put the seed so, in the styrofoam? So I say it's soilless farming. But you have to start those plants in soil. <laughs> oh, okay. And, okay. Um, until until they sprout, and then once they sprout, you stick them in a little cup in the styrofoam, and then the roots just fall down into the water and capture the nutrients hmm. from the water. And then the other type style of growing is in a gravel bed. That's a that's a bed that's full of gravel, and. Um, and that's where you grow all of your, you know, your fruit vegetables, like your tomatoes and your peppers and, and all of those things. And what's so squash. great about what's squash, yeah, anything, anything that anything, grows above huh? ground. Okay. Yep. 
Now I won't get to the I won't get to the root vegetables like the potatoes and things like that, but that is possible. But that's I don't even want to get into those details right now. But um, but they love <laughs> their root veggies in Peru, and so we built them a style of a farm where they could really have a maximum amount of of root of vegetable garden for for root veggies. But um, what's so cool about aquaponics farming is that the fish waste. Fertile, uh, that feeds nutrients to the plants. And so what happens, like, for instance, in the, in the grow beds, there's little microbes that live in the bottom of the grow beds in the sludge, and those microbes are like the key to the aquaponic system working because all that waste from the fish, which comes out as ammonia, which is harmful for the vegetables, but when it hits those microbes, the microbes convert it to nitrates that feed the plants, and they flourish. And so you have... So every time the fish poops, you're empowering the plants. And so, and then all that water that's being, that's flowing from the fish tank full of waste into the grow beds, being converted by the microbes, and now that water is being purified, and it gets pumped back into the fish tanks, and so it recycles all the same water. So you have this constant flow of nutrients. That's why the growth rates are so high so fast and so furious is because you're just pumping these plants with rich nutrients constantly and you're recycling the same water. So in areas of the world where water is a limited resource, aquaponics farming is really beneficial because the only water loss that you're going to experience is through evaporation. So that is Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. So yeah. do you have to be near a water source to, to make up for the loss of, of the evaporation? Yeah, I mean, you or can collect would they rainwater. bring that in in tanks or? Uh huh. Yep. Um, a lot of places we do farms for have wells, um, or they're, you know, urban enough. I mean, some of these safe homes are in the city. Um, we've built two farms on a rooftop, in in cities. Oh, one wow. in Kathmandu and one in Mexico City for safe homes that you know we're we're protecting. I mean, traffic children. And they're completely like walled, contained, safe. Like that's why they call them safe homes. But they're so tight, and the living quarters. We would just get creative, and we've actually done two rooftop farms. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So, so you need it's recirculating. Yeah. Yeah. And the water just you you have a pump in there or something that recirculates the water. Exactly. Continually. Yeah. So. It, and where do you get yep. the uh, fish from? Where do the fish come from? Yeah, that's from? a great question. Um, usually we'll go to the the nearest. Tilapia is everywhere. And, and the reason why we love using tilapia is because, one, it's easy to get anywhere in the world. Everybody's familiar with it. Huh. Everybody likes it. It's great nutrients. And they are hardy. They grow very, very fast. And um, we usually find uh, a place where we can get, like, the nearest city, any of the nearest cities. We've never been denied um, tilapia fingerlings. So we'll go and we'll buy a whole bunch of, of tilapia fingerlings from the nearest town or city and use those to start the system. Now, you can, um, well, you, I mean, you can raise your own fish and and you can breed your own fish but we want to get these systems started like right away and so we want those nutrients to really be 
generating in the system. So we'll buy uh-huh. fish for all the farms, and then sometimes, and then a lot of these farms will begin breeding their own fish after that. Now, and they do they then are there enough fish? Do they breed themselves in the uh, aquaponics environment? Uh, can you yeah, harvest the fish? It's really easy to breed tilapia. I didn't know how easy it was until we started. And to actually, one of our first safe homes, we, we weren't telling anybody to breed their fish. We were just saying, yeah, it's too complicated. We're not even going to train you in that. And then one of our farm managers took two tilapia and just put them in a separate tank and put a little Marvin Gaye on the radio, and all of a sudden, <laughs> they started breeding. <laughs> That's all you got to do. Really? Huh. Yeah. And so do they harvest the fish for food? Is there enough fish to, yeah. to, to do that? Um, yes. yes. But, but they're, they're, mainly it's the vegetables, though. That it depends. The, you know, it depends. Like in Thailand, they love the vegetables, but they love their fish um, just because it is a limited resource in Thailand, and the fisheries are so depleted, and, and they just they love And so it's a great commodity for them. So we built a farm – in northern Thailand outside of Chiang Mai for a safe home that has 122 kids all have been rescued from brothels, all 122 of them. Mm. And, um, and they keep adding fish tanks, and, and they keep growing the farm so they can have more fish. And uh-huh. before we built the farm for them, and it's pretty much – that's pretty much – they don't sell the fish at that farm. They pretty much just use that to feed the kids and offset their expenses. But before mm-hmm. we went, fish was at best a once-a-week, like, special treat for the kids at the home. Now they can eat fish every day, which is pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very interesting. Well, I want to dig more into that, but we'll take a quick break here and come back and uh, talk more about the farming. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very interesting and sounds very useful and <laughs> efficient. So uh, we'll be right back and, and do just that. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with the restoration of habitats like the Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remained unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, flyfishersinternational.org. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Bucky Buckstabber about using fly fishing to help stop poverty and human trafficking. If you'd like to ask Bucky a question, go to our homepage, fill out that form, and send it to us, and we'll, we'll get your question answered on the show tonight. So um, 
question did come in here. Uh, yeah, it's Rich S. from Tom's River, New Jersey again. And he says, any idea of how many have become self-sufficient and have become reliant on their own revenue streams and leadership? Uh, do, do you tech the remote locations, or maybe that's teach the remote locations, leadership and management skills? Great question, yes. Um, I would say I don't think we've done 12 farms in 10 countries, and we don't have a single home that is completely self-sufficient self from the farm solely. Um, now, I dream of the day when that starts to happen, um, and I think it very, very, very likely can happen and will happen. Um, and that's when you're getting to kind of a commercial size capacity for a farm. Um, and so right now, all of our homes are either using the farms to offset their budgets or to create an additional revenue stream to care for their kids, which in turn will allow them to create more beds to care for more kids, which is pretty awesome. We just hired... In fact, she starts on April 1st, a um, aquaponics professional. She's a graduate from Kentucky State University and has her degree in horticulture with an emphasis on um, sustainable solutions for developing countries. And she is, um, I think she's really going to help us expand into kind of helping these homes create more of a robust commercial-sized farms um, so that they can become solely sufficient on those. It would be amazing. That's a great question. Yeah, the, the second part was, uh, do you teach the remote locations leadership and management skills? So uh, when you leave, is there somebody local that, that's pretty much running the show and has been trained? Yeah, yeah. We only work with local local leaders. We're all about empowering local leaders or just giving them tools so that they can empower themselves. But um, yeah, we don't we don't manage any of the farms. We mm -hmm. train them how to manage the farms, and and then we just want because we want them to take complete. We give them these farms. We don't take any money from them. We don't take anything off any percentage. We don't we don't we want we just want to give them the tools to use it as best as they possibly can, and that's tools in in operating the farm, but also tools in uh, business development and how they can actually create, you know, a revenue through the marketplace. Um, but that's been a challenge for us, too, because every culture and every community is different, and we're not so dialed into that community and, and how the whole economic systems work in the communities. And so that's where we're, we really rely on our managers and ask them, what do they want to do with the farm? And then we'll create a system to best accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, are all the farms pretty similar in size when they start out? Do you have like a, a template no. that you use? Yeah. Hmm. We, uh, we kind of have a standard size farm, but homes that we've, you know, we've done farms for, us, you know, safe homes. Like, for instance, Mexico City had eight girls in it, and it was a, a small home, and we just built a very small farm. Um, and then we've also done farms for, you know, uh, safe home that had 166 kids in it. So there's a wide scale wow. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the more kids, the bigger the farm. That's basically how it goes. And 
it's an identical system in the sense that for a small home, you'll have maybe one or two fish tanks and one or two grow beds. And then we want, and we want a bigger home, you just add fish tanks, grow beds, fish tanks, grow beds, fish tanks, grow beds. And so they're really easy to scale. And so when I talked about oh, that okay. farm in Thailand, all they had to do to, you know, create more fish and produce was add another fish tank, add another grow bed, or add a, a couple more grow beds, and they're scaling to meet their need, which oh. is really cool. And what is it, what's the price range for your average farm that you, yep. that you build? Good question. Average price range is when all is said and done is about $30,000. And so we're talking about $15,000 covers the material costs on this kind of a standard medium-sized farm. Um, that's the greenhouse. That's the plumbing. That's the tanks. That's the gravel. Everything, everything will, you know, $15,000 will cover the material expenses of a farm. And then the additional $15,000 covers our team to go build the farm and train the farm managers. And so a, a average ballpark is about 30000 per farm. Okay, okay. And uh, do you use the local people for workers as well to supplement the volunteers, or is it all the volunteers doing the building? No, we love, we love bringing in the community as much as possible, if it's safe. Um, some of the safe mm -hmm. homes are you know, they're, um, they're highly guarded, highly protected, and, and some of them, we, you know, are, in, like, literally hidden in the jungle because traffickers want their revenue back. They want their victims back. And so, mm -hmm. um, but when we can, when it's an orphanage, oh, my gosh, we have such an amazing time bringing in locals, and we hire locals as much as we can um, just, you know, just to give them some advantage and, and meet some incredible people. Um, yeah, and we also, you know, source our materials locally as much as possible and bring in the locals to help us build it because we want these farms to be replicated. We don't want, you know, to make one person rich. We want, we want to benefit the entire community. So, so in general, you don't uh, ship in materials? You're usually no, able to find in all general, the materials locally? Yeah. Yeah. In general, we don't. Um, we do bring our own pumps because um, we are really confident that our pumps will last for, you know, a decade or more. And so mm -hmm. they're not having – because you lose your pump, then, you know, you, you kind of you, – you kill down. all your – you kill your whole system. you got to keep it circulating. So we have a lot of confidence in the pumps that we provide. Um, but other than that, it's yeah yeah we source everything locally. There's sometimes there's fittings like odd fittings that we can't find for like the the PVC fittings that that we'll need, and we we just don't aren't confident that we can find it in that community. We'll sometimes we'll be at the airport with like a bag or duffel bag or two full of pipe fittings, and we always kind of get questioned by security. What in the, is that? What is that? <laughs> yeah, what are you building? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, we're just yeah. going to build the bomb when we get there. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. There's, um, what about electrical power? Is that from local uh, yeah. power supplies, or are you doing solar? Or Yeah, we actually haven't done a single solar farm yet, and I just can't wait until we do. We've had some solar backups, and we have backup – a lot of the places, the, if they're on the grid, the grid isn't very reliable. 
and so we'll have a backup generator um, so that the system is, you know, continuing to operate when until the power goes back on. But um, solar is definitely a possibility, but it's also expensive. It's expensive to build. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably not available necessarily locally in some of these places either, right? Yeah. be something yeah. you'd have to bring in. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, uh, I think you've answered about all my questions here. <laughs> so uh, we did have, oh, yeah, there's a question about, um, you know, have you encountered any dangerous problems with traffickers trying to stop your work, disrupting, you know, the building or anything like that? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, no, we have, you know, we haven't. Um, we've been into some, we've done some farms for some homes that were very, very, very high security because traffickers will do whatever it takes to, to get their livelihood back. But um, we've never run across any which is awesome. We've never had any pushback from local governments. Um, yeah, it's, it's all been pretty straightforward so far. I would say the most dangerous thing besides uh, some of <laughs> sometimes we got to get creative with, with our building because we don't have, you know, we don't have the power tools that, um, in those areas that, that we, or sometimes we, we don't even have ladders, and so we'll have to make our own ladders, and we've had a couple falls. Wow. <laughs> but um, the most danger that we've ever experienced is our fishing trips after the farms. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's where we always screw I, up, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, seriously. We took, I was dying to find, so I've always, I've always wanted to catch mossier. Have you, do you know what mossier is? Sure, yeah, over There's in India. The yeah, gold, and India, you've got the golden mossier, right? They're incredible. They're in we Miramar. To, um, yeah. Yep, yep, and actually we, we found some golden mossier in Nepal, um, which was really cool. Uh, but in, in Thailand, they have a mossier called the blue mossier, and it's just beautiful. These, these fish are just gorgeous. They're not as big as the golden mossier, but they're, um, you know, I think the biggest blue mossier we caught was probably five or six pounds, but just breathtakingly beautiful. They're blue. I mean, it's, in, it's insane. And when we took our trip to Thailand, I really wanted to take the team to go fish for blue mossier, but I couldn't find any connection in Thailand in anywhere and anybody who knew not only where to catch blue mossier, but what a blue mossier is. Because in Thailand, they've got one word for fish, and it's fish. They don't really like, – <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't get a single species yeah. out of anybody. And so huh. I'm desperately searching. Like, we're talking like um, it's two days before we fly out for our trip, and I know my volunteers want to fish after the trip, and I can't find anything. And I finally found a guy through some crazy Internet search that lived down in southern Thailand, and he said he'd take us mossier fishing. And, I, and he said he knew where the blue mossier are. And I said, that's it. I found the guy. No questions asked. I booked the trip. And, um, and then it, we just scurried to the airport, got onto the build, and I just really didn't have much time to line up the details. All I knew is I had to meet this guy down at the edge of a lake, this huge lake down uh, in southern Thailand, and he would take us into the jungle for four days. So all I knew was going <laughs> in the jungle with a stranger I met on the Internet. <laughs> That's pretty adventurous. Yeah. Well, 
So do we have time for the rest of the story? Sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I mean, it's, it's, um, sometimes, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what, it, yeah. I, it was, so we got there. He met us in a long tail boat at the dock. We, you know, dump our gear in the boat, and he drives us up across the lake into these river channels, and there's all these, you know, hundreds of river channels flowing down from the mountains into the lake, and we're going way up these river channels to where we're going to camp in the jungle. And he stops, um, it's the end of the day now, it's about dinner time, he stops at this floating bungalow, and that's where we're going to stay, right on the bungalow, on the water, because you can't camp in the jungle, because it's full of elephants and tigers and all and the bugs and oh it's just it's crazy so um we camped out that night in the bungalow ate a delicious like totally authentic amazing thai dish there was one um like honestly just the jungle woman she lived in a tribe out in the jungle and she cooked for us and it was amazing i don't even know what it was it was phenomenal and we get up the next morning (laughs) and we get up the next morning and he says you guys look like you can hike. We're going to hike today. And he's the only one that speaks kind of a broken English. And so he's our guy. And so he said, put these on. And he told, he put these, he told us to put these, like, tubes over our socks, like these tube sock things over our boots and, and tuck our shirts in and tighten our belts. And I said, what are these for? And he's like, these are for the leeches. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be oh, fun. Yeah. And then we get to we get out to the boat, and there's two villagers with machine guns, and they hop in the boat with us. And now I'm starting to questioning question my decision. I'm like, did I just lead my team to get murdered, or we're going to have the trip of a lifetime? It's one or the other. <laughs> well, we know so I, you didn't get murdered. <laughs> yeah. I humbly and politely asked hey, what are the machine guns for? <laughs> and he said, for the elephants. They scare the elephants away. Oh, so we ended, up, yeah. we ended up hiking elephant trails for miles and miles and catching blue moss here. Um, and just ha- we ended up having the trip of a lifetime. We got, uh, we got annihilated by, by leeches. Um, and the leeches in Thailand are like leech, nothing like I've ever seen before. They crawl on the land. And wow. just... They just yeah. and they crawl up your legs. They come out of the mud. It's just insane. But all that's to say, we were talking about danger, and dan- I think the only danger that we've ever encountered is my crazy ideas on these fishing yeah. trips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that worked out. It sounds like it turned into really quite an adventure. So, yeah. Well, we've got one more question to finish up for tonight, and um, – it's from uh, Jeremy Watkin in San Diego, California. He says, what are some practical ways the fly fishing community can help your organization continue to make a difference? So oh, people that are listening, you, how can they help you out? Thank you, Jeremy. Um, spread the word, definitely. Uh, the more people that we have aware of what we're doing, um, I think the greater the impact that we can make. So, you know, whether it's just, you know, following us on the social media and posting, you know, about us, that's always really helpful. Obviously, volunteering is really helpful. Um, we love it when people just decide to volunteer to initiate their own fundraising event in whatever city and collaborate with their local fly shop and maybe do like 
a little raffle or an auction or or show a show a have a fly fishing film night and and pay you know charge admission and and use that to donate to the cause because obviously you know we can't do what we do without funding and so the financial support is 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 huge for us um we've had people just do a whole a fundraiser to sponsor an entire farm and and they've been successful and so they can actually like literally just put their name on that farm and and say i did this i built this farm for this community um because right. we work with our local fly shop to to rally our community around this that's awesome yeah. so and but, go but to what about events that's what i was just going to say night. yeah yeah how do they night. find out about that and what, what do they need to do? Go to flyfishingcollaborative.org, and right there on our front page, you'll see a link to our auction, which is going on right now, ends tomorrow night. We've got 85 incredible fly fishing-related packages in our auction, trips, gear, things like that. And then, our, uh, and then Friday night at 6 p.m. Pacific time is our live stream event. And you'll hear, you'll hear, you'll see videos of some of our farm managers thanking this community, the fly fishing community, for what we've provided for them. And you'll hear me yap a whole bunch more. And um, I think you, it's it's going to be a really fun, fun event. So that's Friday night, 6 p.m. Go to flyfishingcollaborative.org. Perfect, perfect. Well, we've run out of time, Bucky, but hang with me. We're, uh, for a few more minutes, uh, we're just going to give away some prizes and want you to be part of that. And uh, so uh, just hang tight. And uh, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. We'll also be giving away uh, a, a book, courtesy of Stackable Books. So um, for that, you'll have to answer my questions and be the first one to answer it correctly. So uh, we'll do that in just a minute. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, and a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. So to view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, go to fishon.org. That's fishon.org. Or call them at 616-855-4017. At 616-855-4017. And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away our prizes. The uh, winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, too late now, but do so for our next one so you can have a chance at, at getting some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. Uh, so first, we'll be giving away a membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about them, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. So fire up my database here. and. Uh, 
Click the button, and here we go. Okay, we got Rich Stanton. Uh, Rich Stanton is our winner for the Fly Fishers International uh, membership. Uh, Rich is in New Jersey, so congratulations, Rich. And now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Check them out. They've got all kinds of books on fishing and, um, and periodicals as well. And our winner for that is... Joe Raymond, Joe Raymond in New Mexico. Uh, so congratulations, Joe. Uh, I know you'll enjoy your subscription. And now we'll give away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Uh, and uh, let's see. Clear my cue here. Okay, to answer this question, you go to our homepage. There's that box, that submission form down there. Just put in your answer and your name and your location, and uh, the first one that uh, gets the answer right will uh, win a book from Stackpole Books. So uh, the question is, name three of the countries that uh, Bucky's put farms into. Three of the countries. Okay? He rattled off about seven or eight, I think. We're just looking for three of them. So let me know what those are. So let's see, Bucky, and see if we get some... See if people are paying attention here. So get a an answer. And uh, takes a second, a slight delay while from the, the broadcast. And, and then we have some slow typists out there, I guess, tonight. So <laughs> still looking. Let me get a winner here. Well. Oh. Hope it's working. Or that wasn't a hard question. Geography. No, no, <laughs> they don't know you, uh, you mentioned you mentioned in one of your commercials. You mentioned mentioned Placencia, and we yeah. did a, a, a project down there, um, just south of Placencia, and we're actually working in a village north of Placencia right now, um, this year, which we're really excited about. Um, but I was yeah, able to said, fish you, out of you did. yeah. It, you did one, um, uh, is, is Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, is that correct? Not Nigeria. Nigeria and, uh, and uh, yeah, two out of three. Chris, too bad. Okay, <laughs> we've got, uh, okay, we've got another one here. How about Peru, Belize, and Mexico? Mexico, I'll take that. I'll take that. It was Mexico City, so that's. Technically, right. Mexico, all countries, absolutely. Yes, yeah, countries. we have a winner. Yeah. Okay, that's Phil. Phil McCartney, you won again. Phil has won many <laughs> times. Do you have a whole library I now? think I personally uh, put his library together, yeah, yeah. But he's, a, he's, a, he's a, been listening for about, I don't know, maybe 16 years now. <laughs> I don't know. Phil, how many years have you been listening? Type it in there. So, uh, and let us know. And you know the routine, Phil, so I don't have to tell you. Uh, but um, anyway, um, yeah, good. So you said you, you're doing one down below Placentia, south of Placentia? North, yeah, north of Placentia in a little village called Gales Point. Right. Um, but there's about. So are you doing two ahead. projects down there or one? No, no, we did one years ago. 2014, we did oh. one down in uh, south. Yeah, and now oh, we've got okay. a new one that's developing um, in, a, in a little village north of Placentia, uh, just north of Dangriga. Right, right. 
Where's yeah. the one south of Placencia? Punta Gorda. Oh, it Punta is in Gorda. Punta Gorda. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I spent some time there in the off-grid uh, cabins uh, in the jungle there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I know that area. Travel that whole country pretty extensively. But anyway, uh, enough yeah. of that. <laughs> hey, Bucky, thanks for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, it was a blast learning about this stuff. And, uh, and thank you so much for helping all the people that you're helping. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Thanks for having me, Roger. Yeah, no problem. Hopefully, everybody, you've found the podcast archive on our website. And if you haven't, just look for the link in the top line of our menu on the website. In that archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 330 now or something like that. Uh, And you can search by a keyword or keyword phrase like trout or tarpon or uh, Madison River, whatever you want, and uh, find all kinds of great interviews that we've done over the years. Uh, in fact, in fact, the next interview will be our uh, 16th anniversary from when we started. Uh, so um, join us for that one. It's going to be on March 17th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Carol Ann Morris. And uh, our topic for the show will be how to capture what you see. And Carol's photographs and paintings have not only appeared in most of her husband, Skip Morris's 21 fly fishing books and tying books, but also on the covers and interior pages of such magazines and books as Gray's Sporting Journal, Fly Fisherman, uh, Yale Angler's Journal, American Angler, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and America's Favorite Flies. So join us and learn how to take better photographs of the beautiful places you fish, your fishing buddies, the fish themselves, and, of course, yourself. <laughs> so uh, join us then. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.